0: We have a time and a place for MicroConf Europe 2022. It's going to be November 15th through the 17th at the Intercontinental in Malta. This will be a limited capacity event. It's going to be smaller than previous MicroConf Europe's due to a, a number of factors. So it's definitely something that if you want to go to Malta, to MicroConf Europe in November, you're going to want to head to microconf.com Europe for more details and to buy your ticket. In terms of speakers, I of course will be speaking per usual, and we have Guillaume Mubesh. He's the founder and CEO of Lemlist, which is a company that has bootstrapped to eight figures in ARR. Hope to see you in Malta, November fifteenth through the seventeenth. That's microconf.com/europe. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. This is a news roundup episode where I pull Tracy Osborne and Inar Volset on the show. We talk about ProfitWell's $200 million exit. We talk about spreadsheet mentality, watching an acquirer ruin your company and cover other news stories related to Bootstrap and mostly bootstrapped founders. And if you're into this show and you haven't checked out our YouTube channel, you really should. I'm releasing what essentially are Rob's solo adventures, but they're videos and they're pretty tightly edited. They're between seven and I'd say about 15 minutes, covering topics ranging from the top 10 avoidable mistakes SaaS startups make, SaaS pricing models explained in five minutes, whether micro SaaS products are profitable, ideal customer acquisition funnels, how to come up with a go-to-market strategy for SaaS, and on and on. It's just free educational content. It's microconf.com slash YouTube. I hope you check it out. And with that, let's dive into today's news roundup. First up, we have Tracy Osborne. She is Tracy Makes on Twitter, Program Director for Tiny Seed. Welcome back to the show.
1: Yeah, happy to be here.
0: I'm excited to dive into some fun Bootstrapper news today, and Anna Volset, you're joining us again as well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So to kick us off, I, so I have two fun questions that I'm going to dive into. But before I do that, fun. Tracy, <laughs> we we have uh, no. I so you know how I send you an outline in advance so you can prepare. These questions are not in that. You outline. do, uh huh. You know the outline I slapped oh. you this morning. So you read. Oh wait. Okay. Oh boy, this is this is going to be a wild <laughs> ride, people. So bu- buckle up. Tracy Osborne, we are, we being Tiny Seed, are opening applications for our next couple batches. When is that happening?
1: That's going to happen on September 12th. So we're going to have, we we'll be opening up applications for both of our accelerator programs. That is Tiny Seed Americas, surveying everything on this, this side of the time zone, Canada, U.S., all the way down to South America. And then we have Tennessee to Europe, which serves actually Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So applications will be opening for two weeks on September 12th for both accelerators. It's one application you can choose which you want to apply for, or if you're not sure if you're in a different location and you're, you know, say Australia, and you're not sure which one's the right one for you, you can also choose that option as well, but very excited to get this rolling. This is gonna be for our fall 2022 batch. It's gonna be starting in November.
0: Excellent. And with that, I need to find out. A and R Volset, is it GIF or JIF? It's GIF, of course it is. Ah, hard G.
1: We're not talking peanut butter here, Tracy.
0: You as well. As, wait, <laughs> we all agree. This is not good radio. See, one of us has to hold on to the GIF.
1: Everyone has to agree because that's the way it
0: goes. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, send your hate mail to questions at startups for the rest of us. All right, so <laughs> profit well, profit well sold. For north of two hundred million, actually, I know. You know, we we remember the number is two hundred million, but if you look at all the articles, it says more than two hundred million. So some number more than that. Bootstrap company, some services, a lot of SaaS, two hundred million exit slash merger. I know, like when I interviewed Patrick on the show, you know, a few weeks ago, he he kind of interchanges it because they, you know, they got took quite a bit of stock and, and everything. So, Anar, what's your read on this acquisition? What's your sense?
2: I'm stoked. <laughs> yeah? Not just stoked for Patrick. I mean, Patrick's a good dude, and I'm super happy for him. And, you know, uh, you know I, whether a merger or acquisition or however you want to call it, I think it just once again shows puts down this notion that, that somehow bootstrap businesses or mostly bootstrap businesses can only be small, tiny, little, inconsequential things. And I think just purely from a, if you just look at outcome – I mean, I, I still don't actually don't know how much cash he got versus how much stock in the joint entity. So which is probably where the where the merger slash acquisition bifurcation comes from.
0: Approximately fifty-fifty, I asked him on the show. Yeah.
2: Okay, yeah. So so he'll probably have a great outcome, you know, if they do an IPO on top of that. But but you know, if it was all cash. You know, if it had been, it wouldn't surprise me if that kind of an outcome for, for someone like Patrick would have been better than your standard VC success IPO billion-dollar exit because of there's just no dilution. <laughs> Which, as an investor, you early-stage investors like we are, you you know that, like – if people start raising a lot of money and, and going that path, you as an early stage investor, unless you keep piling money in, you're going to get diluted. And obviously, that's what happens to the founders themselves, because they don't they don't have a way to to put more money, in. they they are just getting diluted for every round. So I'm super stoked. It's so nice to see more of these type successes. You know, like, because every time I, I talk about this, I talk about MailChimp. And, and I think sometimes that's almost such an outlier outcome that people think it's just as like once in a lifetime, well, you can't draw any inferences from it. So the fact that you're seeing outcomes like like Patrick had, I think just opens people's eyes to it. And, and, and I think it's a great thing all around. And I actually think it happens much more than people know. Like, we, you know, we did the article on the depth of the software iceberg a year or two ago. And again, that speaks to like someone, I guess someone with less, you know, social media reach than Patrick this kind of thing could happen without anyone noticing. It wouldn't have made any news. He wouldn't have done anything. It's just a great outcome for, for Patrick and the team. So I'm I'm stoked for him.
0: Yeah, me as well. Because it's it's a big piece of the tiny seat thesis, right? The thesis of tiny seat doesn't work unless some bootstrappers can grow their companies, you know, and, and be ambitious with it. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's dig in to our next story, which is watching an acquirer ruin your company. We will link all these up in the show notes. This is on the Kelsus blog. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story because it's essentially an acquisition. I mean, it's a, a development firm that helped out with the software piece, and then this um, they did a hardware component that they essentially what kickstarted, and then someone acquired it. And kind of ran it into the ground, basically. And you can read the whole piece if you're interested. There's a section called "The Rug Pull" at the end where uh, they talk about the new acquirer basically shutting it down. So, with that, Tracy, I'm curious to hear your thoughts.
1: I, I want to be sympathetic to the founder because I think this is a common story. Something I've heard from a lot of folks who have been acquired that then watch their baby that they grew from, you know, from infancy to a place where it can be acquired, going off to a new parent, the new parent making decisions that they didn't plan or didn't expect or don't think are the right decisions. You know, the product suffers and then the parent company shuts it down. I feel like that's a very common story that I've heard in a lot of places. I have empathy for the founders going through that situation. But when you make the choice to be acquired, you know, as the founder, you're giving away the ability to make decisions afterwards and you know i again empathy it sucks to watch people make decisions that you don't think are the right decisions but you made that choice in exchange for either some sort of acquisition money or you know, maybe just to have that little check mark on your resume saying that you have taken a company to acquiring and you sold it and then you can you know have Theoretically an easier time doing your next startup or you know, at least having that that win on your resume. You do that in exchange for not being able to make the decisions anymore. And therefore, what happens afterwards for good or you know, you want to see things succeed at the parent company, but it's up to the parent company, the acquirer, to do with what they bought, you know, and it sucks to see that. How
0: about you, i
2: I wanted to be sympathetic to this and and like I've you know, I've seen both sides of the coin here in terms of post-acquisition things going really well and post-acquisition things going, you know, terribly badly. It's actually not uncommon for in acquisitions that you, like people assume, I think a lot of the time that you do an acquisition, you get a bunch of cash and you walk away and like, but boom. But a lot of the time you end up with some equity in the acquiring company or, or the new entity or whatever. And, and yeah, your success from there is sort of dependent upon how that goes. And so I've seen people, you know, have an exit, and then three, five years later, have another exit that's five times larger. So, so it can definitely go both ways. I actually think with <laughs> with this thing, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the to the acquirer than perhaps you know the the writer of this piece is, just because I think it's one of those things like what's the what's that parable with the elephant where it's like five blind dudes touch an elephant and try to describe what it is. I think sometimes, you know, in this particular case, you know, they raised a reasonable size Kickstarter, but not like tens and tens of millions. You know, there was like 188,000 bucks, which for like an advanced native iOS and Android app almost isn't enough money just to, to build the apps out, let alone do the hardware production. So there was still a fair amount of risk for the acquiring company. And I think, like, a lot of the time there's this notion, for with founders at least, and, and I know this wasn't the founder writing the piece, but, like, this notion that, like, if they get to the level of success where they can get acquired, then it's really just an operational thing after that. It's just, like, it's just priorities. And, like, they f***ed it up somehow because of some internal malign you know, big company issue. Like, you know, it it definitely would have succeeded if it just kept going. I'm so sad I sold it. I think a lot of the time there's a fair amount of risk that the acquirer is taking that the the founders or the sellers just don't see. Like in this case, you know, after the acquisition, they ended up getting a distribution deal through Apple, which is a huge thing. Do I think that this company could have done that by themselves? Probably not. Like, so the, the alternate universe is one where this company kind of just fizzled out like six months later and that was the end of it like you know i don't necessarily think there was like it's often portrayed like it was guaranteed success they just had to do the right thing and because of incompetence or because they're a big company they screwed it up and i just don't buy that a lot of the time it just doesn't make any sense and even if they did in some cases like there's an allusion to another acquisition which became a higher priority. Well that's the nature of business. in some cases, you have to make hard calls right It's like okay, if this one acquisition turned out to be something that they didn't quite, didn't quite go as quickly as they'd hoped or and then they found another thing that was a much higher leverage thing, I think it it was the right thing to to shut down the smaller thing and focus on the bigger opportunity that's the kind of difficult decisions you do need to make in business i don't so I guess I'm not particularly sympathetic to this story, although I know it's frustrating to see it for sure.
1: You can have your cake and eat it too.
2: <laughs> Sell it and then
0: keep control, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah there, there's a good quote from Tim Cook, paraphrasing, but he says there will always be more really good ideas than we can ever pursue. And that's piggybacking on what you said, Anar. And I used to love to use that at Drip, both when before acquisition and after acquisition was... because. People would suggest feature requests, especially after acquisition, where 125 person team, salespeople would come, marketing, whatever, like, hey, you should build this, you should build that. And I'm like, we're not gonna build that. And people would almost be insulted, like, what? but it's a great idea. And it's like, there will always be more great ideas than we can possibly implement. And, and that's what you're saying. It's prioritization. As someone who has sold several companies and had most of them frankly shut down or run into the ground afterwards. Not, you know, drip is the exception, but like hit tail doesn't exist anymore. There were like three or four smaller deals that I sold. And those are like floundering around. There are certain ones that people tried to autopilot and got nuked. But then having sold Drip and seeing things like, hey, the whole color palette's redesigned. The entire UI is now different and has a side nav. And I don't like that at all. And there was the pricing change three years ago. You know, there's just all this stuff they've done that I would not have done or would have done very differently. You know what? I still use Drip. I still like the tool. I let it go the day that I sold it. And I, you know, I still worked on it for a while after that, but I was under no, (laughs) no delusion that somehow I still had control of it after I let it go. Like you sign the docs, the money needs to be worth it. Is what I'll say, like the money needs to be worth it such that you walk away or or if you don't walk away, that it's worth just writing it off mentally.
2: I think the money's got to be worth it. I think a lot of the time, like also, like what else are you going to be working on if not this, like, is the money good enough? And like, I think it's in some cases people sell too early because they're like, oh, I just am sort of bored of this successful thing and I can just easily start another successful thing. I see a lot of the time people selling, particularly if they sell pretty early so they can't, you know, retire on the money, really. They end up thinking like, oh, I was successful. I'll just be successful again. And then they try and it's like, eh, it's not, you know, luck does play in and things that are outside of your control. I, I do think that happens a fair amount of the time.
0: Yeah, on a recent episode, I was talking with Ruben Gomez and talking about how the second time, third time, fourth time, it's a little easier, but it's not as easy as, you, as it should be, as you think it's going to be. There's still that massive uphill, getting to the MVP, spending six to 12 to 18 months finding product market fit where it's like, wait a minute, I should know how to do this. Shouldn't I be able to just have product market fit right from day one? And you won't. You watch David Cancel, you watch Heat and Shaw. We watch you know all these founders who are four, five, six-time founders still take years and pivot and grinding it. In order to get to a place where they have another successful business, I definitely think you have a leg up, but it's not nearly as much as as one would think.
2: And it happens even on, on like pretty high profile folks, like with lots, almost what I would call unlimited resources. You know, there's been like just thinking about like the Twitter co founders, right? Like several of them have tried things that just, it should work, but it just doesn't. It didn't. And just, they shut it down. And it was just like, this is not going to work.
0: Our next story is called The Spreadsheet Mentality Sucks. And kills the efficacy of jobs. This is, post, mm-hmm. this Boom. is posted on Medium, Boom. and the hypothesis is: Boom. hold your comments, please. Okay, good.
2: <laughs> is it? Is it? Is it Google? Is it Google spreadsheets? It's okay, only fair Google. Enough. Yeah, that's fine.
0: It's Google sheet mentality. So he basically defines spreadsheet mentality, which is just an interesting term. I don't. I, I'm not quite sure why the, that term's used, but whatever. It's that. That what gets measured gets managed.
1: Qualified stuff versus yes, quantified, quantity versus uh, data, right? So it's the stuff that you can measure versus stuff you can't measure, right.
0: and basically saying that if you lean too far into that, that there are these soft, you know, soft skills and soft interactions and all types of stuff that you can't measure in a spreadsheet that is important. Which look, I agree with. Software development, you can't rank developers. If I had 10 developers working on a project, I'm not going to say, oh, this one fixed more bugs. This person wrote more lines of code today. Like it's not quantifiable. It's only quantifiable in like a softer way of like, I know who's shipping a lot of stuff and I know who doesn't have very many bugs. And I, you know, there are many roles I think that where this applies, but I guess I haven't worked at a company that went so far overboard in this direction that I feel like this article is necessary. Like, is it a straw man? That's really, is this a straw man argument where it's just, hey, look, there are MBAs doing things, you know, so I'll throw it to you first, Tracy, what's your take on this piece?
1: Well, I'll have to admit that I've never worked at a company larger than, I guess, technically larger than tiny seed for about three months, but that one does not count. So I've always been a small company kind of person. But I, you know, I, I can kind of see this mentality where people at small companies look at people at large companies and they're like, oh, man, look at all those like middle managers that are just trying to like, what was it, OKRs, you know, just trying to like, create like something they can track from quarter to quarter so that they have hard data, of whether things are working or not. And then rah, it doesn't work because you're talking about people processes and hiring and quote unquote, soft skills and whatnot. I can see where the struggle is because I know, you know, as a manager, I think about this at Tennessee where I'm, you know, I'm working with Alex and there's a part of me, it's like, wow, I really wish there was a way that I can know definitively every quarter if I'm doing a good job. And so I can see the temptation to be like, all right, I'm going to figure out something I can track and I can take that thing that I'm track and I'm going to track it over time. And then I will definitively know. But that's the thing is, you know, this, this spreadsheet mentality is that there's a lot of parts that come into that process. I guess they're warning against that. But I also think that it's kind of logical that, you know, that that's not the way to go, I guess. Like, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I can see the larger picture of this person is talking about. But I agree with you is that at larger companies, I don't think it's like everyone is working off the of spreadsheets. Like your Facebook, you're not going to have like a certain manager that is just working off spreadsheets. And that's the only way you can manage the entire company. There's gonna be a lot of inefficiencies, a lot of people processes. But you know, it makes for a good article it makes for a very strong argument, <laughs> makes for something that's clickable. So could be a straw man
0: the title is clickable yeah i do like there's one bullet towards the end of the article as he's concluding and he says whenever we encounter something we can't track immediately within excel we need to think to ourselves could this still be important I like that sentiment, but that's how, that's how I, I guess intuitively, that's just how I run businesses anyways. Like I use Excel for budgeting and I use Excel for tracking our subscriber list growth and our YouTube follower growth, right? There's a bunch of other crap that's not in that Excel spreadsheet. So I, yeah, again, I, I guess since I maybe do the opposite of this naturally, it I'm having trouble understanding the point of it. What do you think, Anar?
2: Oh, I, I sort of agree, despite being a big, big fan of excel
1: big fan of spreadsheets over here
2: (laughs) except google sheets yeah excel specifically (laughs) um again i think it's one of those things where it's it's sort of similar to the other story it's easy to, to to criticize when you haven't been on the inside it's easy to say oh you know like these big companies are doing it wrong well my one objection to the whole article was like it's not really what is the alternative here you know like just pay attention to the things that aren't trackable sure but like I think a lot of people do that or at least try to do it. And it's like, I I think it would have been a stronger story if it was like with something novel or something structured or something that allowed you to actually track the things that he's claiming aren't being tracked or at least put it to the forefront.
0: It is interesting the way you say that is like because these types of articles, and look, the article is actually well-written and well-reasoned, and, and you know, I think we're critiquing it, but it's, it's a good piece, and I think people should read it. But you know this type of stuff has been coming out for, what, 15-plus years, right, since Dig and Hacker News and all these things started back in the day and Reddit and all that. And I do find that the more of these pieces I read about, anything that's kind of critiquing something is I'm always like, okay, so what's your solution then? You know, it's like, you you can critique all you want, but like, A, have you been in their shoes or are you just criticizing from the stands, right? Are you backseat driving? And B, so what's the solution? And he does offer some stuff at the end that's a little vague, but it's not like a whole new idea and thought process, you know?
1: Well, there's a, there's a things are coming out or things I've been around for a while that help quantify qualitative processes. So for employee engagement, there's quite a few tools out there that paying your employees, ask them how things are going, allows you to kind of, you know, track, I guess, moods over time or how folks are, are doing in general. So you can have an, a, a way of tracking how happy your employees are. For hiring process, surely there's ways that, you know, you can quantify that from, by, I guess, spreadsheet it, you know? You quantify the hiring process in terms of how people are coming through the door and then how fast are things being moved from stage to stage. And, you know, the success rate of employees that are hired, all these things are qualitative processes, but they can have a quantitative element to them. And there are tools out there that do those things. Maybe it's not just like assigning a number in a spreadsheet and forgetting about it, but there are are ways to make sure you have something to track the success of these processes.
2: And, And there's even a tiny seed portfolio other company, Suggestion Ox, that allows you to do anonymous feedback.
1: I know, I was kind of <laughs> leaning towards that, yeah. <laughs> anonymous feedback from your, um, from, is it just employees or is it everyone? I can't remember.
2: It can be anyone, but it's mostly set up for yeah, employees. Yeah, that's think. what I thought. Yeah. yeah,
1: and as I'm thinking about
0: it, I guess I did work for one manager who was definitely way further in the track everything KPI OKR camp, very MBA, and I was just like, woof. But he also cared about people. And we also talked a lot about, you know, he he was, he, maybe if I'm 50-50 on those, he's like 80-20, you know, where he wanted more metrics.
1: But does it show a lack of confidence? Mm. I wonder, you know, if they, they can't effectively promote what they're doing. So it's easier to go to their own managers by having definitive numbers. You know, it's almost, it's easier to tell a story with numbers than just being like, yeah, everything I'm doing is great.
0: Yeah, I could see that, right? That an inexperienced manager or someone who maybe doesn't fully understand their role, like if I come in as a general manager, let's say I'm a GM, right, which is is someone who doesn't understand the details of something. Like, I could get hired to be a GM of a tabletop gaming company without ever having played a tabletop game or written one. I could become a GM of a SaaS company without really knowing SaaS metrics, right? That happens. And in that case, what else do you have to manage? It's numbers. So that's probably where, you know, it's either a lack of experience or just a lack of intimate knowledge of the business and the business type and how it works and how it should work that could lead you to rely too much on numbers and wanting to quantify everything. So spreadsheet mentality, people, it's out there. Beware. Don't fall into that trap.
1: I just, li- I like this article in the way I talk about design a lot. And a lot of people struggle with design because it is so qualitative. And I actually do recommend folks to find something quantitative to to track when they're making design changes. So rather than just like changing in color and like thinking, oh, that looks better to tie it to something like click through rates on a certain button and whether that it like does a benefit. So I guess, I guess I'm like pro... Part of the problem. Yeah, I'm pro spreadsheet. <laughs> you are part <laughs> of the problem, I know.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I don't want to keep going on this for too long, but I do think that you can also go in the other direction where you do everything by gut. There have been times in my life, especially early on, where I was trying to eschew all of that because I worked at, I was a developer at a credit card company and yes, there were too many numbers around. And so when I went solo, I was like, I'm not doing any of that stuff, but like you can make the mistake in the other direction too.
1: Oh, my God. You just gave me a flashback from my previous startup, which I didn't track anything. And that's one of the biggest mistakes I had because I just went off the gut feeling that everything was going okay. And that did conference talks about how everything was doing okay, like at MicroConf.
0: <laughs> Until <laughs> no. Google decided it wasn't.
2: Yeah, that's the nice thing about, like, if you're starting a bootstrap startup, there is a number every month that tells you roughly how you're doing. And it's MRR. <laughs> You know, and so like, you know, we we read a lot of investor updates. And in some cases, we're just reading why I I keep reading like this is the most amazing thing ever. It's it's great. And it's great. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't add any MRR. Like, why not? Like, you you clearly need to focus a little bit on that because otherwise you're screwed.
0: Yep. That's that North Star metric. All right. Next piece is from EntrepreneursHandbook.co. And the title is, if you can't buy it twice, don't buy it. And other practical money business advice. And basically is implying, like, if you can't buy something, he talks about a $4,000 TV. And he's like, if you've saved up $4,000, don't buy the TV. If you can't buy the TV twice, you probably can't afford it in the first place. And he kind of talks
2: first through. First of all, where are you getting $4,000 TVs from? Is this 1995? I was going to say. Dude, $4,000 for TV? Like, they're mean, like 200 bucks like at s- Costco. Come on. 4000 bucks you can get like 50 of them.
1: Yeah, you can get like a 60-something
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, inch TV for 1000
1: I mean, is not the point of the article is like, if you can't afford that, the, there's a 4,000 TV that's out there. And if you can't buy two of them, you might as well go to Costco and get the $1,000 TV.
0: Today's role of Hacker News commenter is played by interval <laughs> set because he's picking apart something completely irrelevant <laughs> to the point. Every Just time to one to of my pieces makes it to the front, there's always someone quoting a sentence that's like, that is so not relevant to anything. What are you doing? Are you trying to... Uh. Anyways, yeah, he says, can't buy it twice. Treat yourself. Don't trick yourself. Do you actually need top of the line? Which... Yes, of course I do. But so Tr- Tracy, what's your take on this whole piece? I I thought it was kind of f- neat food for thought, you know, just a different mental model. What do you think?
1: You're laughing because I was nodding vigorously. At the air. <laughs> like, of course I need top of the line. That is absolutely something. I The trap I fall into all the time. Oh yeah, big it's time. Like, Why can't I get the best thing ever? For this new hobby. I'm just going to get all the top things for the hobby.
0: The $2,000 espresso machine rather than the $200 one, right?
1: Oh, talk to me about my copper jamming pot. I'm trying to jump into jamming, and I bought a fancy pot from France so I could do jamming. I could just use my own pots. Anyways. Jamming? Jamming, yes. I'm going to make jam. Oh, you make jam? Yes.
2: Oh, 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 I see. Okay. (laughs) She's (laughs) going to become a fish cover band. <laughs> well, I was like jamming like this, and I was like, "Why do you yeah. need to part from France? It doesn't make any sense." A grateful dad and fish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, on topic, folks. Uh, when it comes to things that are like money matters, I guess rules of thumb are really easy. Th- rules of thumb are a good way to keep people to a budget if you don't have other ways of tracking how your budget is going per month. You know, it's like it's a nice, easy to remember thing where you look. You can look at your bank account, and you can look at what you want to buy. And if you can just think yourself, can I buy two of these? And then it's a yes or no, and then you can go forward with it. So it's definitely a good rule of thumb. It's one of those things I think, like every article, where it's like it's going, it's going very strongly in one direction. And of course, we can think of a thousand exceptions to the rule that things that do make sense to pay high budget for something you might not necessarily buy twice, but maybe it lasts longer than the other thing, and so therefore it makes more sense. So there's a lot of like exceptions to that rule. I think it's this, it's a Something you can keep in mind without holding strongly to it, which does make it a good piece of advice for budgeting.
0: Anar, you strike me as someone who has a very tight budget and counts every penny each uh-huh. month as you sent it. <laughs>
2: Little bit Thank of sec- yeah. So mm-hmm. tell Absolutely. us what you think about,
0: you know, a rule of thumb for for this kind of stuff.
2: I think I think a rule of time is fine. I'd actually rather make a, a more meta point. Like I said, I think, I think Tracy's right. I think like you can make a point either way here. Like, is it worth spending more money on a higher quality item if it's something that you're going to do? I particularly like this notion of like, is it an asset or is it a liability? Somebody early in my life, I should have forgotten exactly who it was, told me like, basically don't borrow money for uh, something that depreciates like a liability, like a car. Versus it's fine to borrow money for something that appreciates like a house. And and I think, I think, look, I think all these are fine. And I think if you need this advice, you need this advice. I, I'm more interested in sort of the meta commentary around this. Like, it's such of its time. Everyone is convinced there's a recession coming, and so I think I think almost as a society we're talking ourselves into a recession because everyone is reading articles like this and thinking like, how do I cut spending? Like, you know, fire early, you know, all that stuff. And I, and and I think I think that's sort of the more interesting point. I don't think we would have seen an article like this last year this time last year or at least it wouldn't have surfaced or or been something that that sort of resonated enough to be discussed so i I think that's the most interesting thing actually is around like i see a lot more of these now like how do you cut spending on this like maybe do that like you know do the cheaper thing don't spend extend your runway and and while i think and i give that kind of advice to a a lot of our founders i think it's right i do think as a it's easy for us to talk ourselves into a recession that way (laughs) because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy
1: I think the article would have been out beforehand because I also feel like there's an element of being judgmental because, you, you know, folks looking at people buying a TV, a $4,000 TV, and they're like, "Ha, ah, why would you do that? Just buy the $1,000 one from Costco, you know, and putting out these rules of thumb. I feel like there's... It works for business too, where you can see a business spending a lot of money on certain so-and-so and it's easy to be like, man, there's this rule of thumb. Why don't you follow this? Blah, 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 blah. But you don't actually see what's going into that thought process. What are the decision-making behind it? You know, maybe there's a larger decision-making process behind the purchase. I mean, it could be up and popular right now because of the recession, but I feel like this mentality has been around for a long time.
0: Yeah, I like the way he breaks it down too, is it thinking about each of these as an individual and as a business? That's kind of cool. I don't see a lot of articles doing that. More Normally it's either personal finance.
1: Yeah, I did like the business side of things. Yeah. Because it's easy when you have, you know, maybe you, you got a chunk of money, maybe you did raise some VC and all of a sudden you have some money burning in your pocket and you want to spend it on a bunch of things. I guess that's, in that case, you can buy a bunch of things because you have that ability to pay for something twice. So maybe that's a good point. But
0: that's the thing. There has to be be an additional rule because once you, let's say you have $100,000 in your personal bank account, you can kind of buy a lot of things twice. Should you? Probably not. You know, so there has to be more. And and he gets into it a little bit and I don't expect that's, that's a personal finance book at that point, right? It's like decision making of what you should and shouldn't buy. What I find that's interesting is I grew up with not a lot of money, so I have always been super like penny pinching and I had to undo that like after, especially after selling drip, like Sherry kept saying, like you may need to fly like something more than coach at some point. Right. And you may need to just not sit and debate whether you should get the guacamole (laughs) on your burrito at Chipotle. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, it's $2. You need to just get this. So I do, I get the guacamole every time now, but then there was this point where like if something's under fifty dollars or a hundred dollars on Amazon and I'm like, oh, I might need this XYZ adapter, I might need this thing, I just buy it now because sitting there for 10 minutes and thinking about it is like not worth the time. The problem is, is what I found I now have a bunch of crap sitting around. It's like when you're <laughs> buying physical things, so about every six to twelve months, I have to kind of give away or sell or donate stuff that I bought impulsively that monetarily doesn't make a difference in our lives, right?
1: can we talk about my jamming yeah. pot, <laughs> pot again <laughs> it was me, me starting a new hobby how and much going was this
2: jamming pot exactly sorry
1: it was like 150 from france this ship to Canada, which 150 dollars to uh it's i mean that's that's Exactly what you just said. I, I start a new hobby and then I look at what I, what can I do to to support this hobby. I also have a ukulele. I've played about ten <laughs> times. That was a great. I got like the nice ukulele instead of the, the you know not so nice ukulele. This is funny. Is that rather You mentioned that you grew up poor because I also grew up poor, but I had like a different reaction than you, which is fine. You know, everyone's different. For some reason, for me, there's a there's this habit where I want to go for the more expensive things. I remember not having those expensive things. I don't. I remember not being able to afford occasionally treating myself to premium economy or business class. And so I crave it and I like lean towards it, even though I'm not as high income to support that all the time. But I'm just like constantly clawing towards it because I feel like I do like, ah, I never want to go back to where I was before. So that's an interesting point. And that shows up when I, when hobbies happen, where I'm just like, I'm just going to buy all the really good things. And then I have to get rid of the good things when it turns out the hobby didn't stick.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, I mean, that that comes into personality, right? It's like the nature yeah. of nurture. But there is something, there's a money mindset quiz or kind of this this test. And I don't remember if that's exactly what it's called, but I remember my kids and I read a book because I've been teaching them since they were little about money and how it works and, you know, how to basically be mature with it. And we all took this this test, and I think Sherry and I took it as well. And it was interesting to see across the kids. Some of them are flippant with their money, and they just, you know, they get allowance and they spend it. And that totally showed up in this in this quiz. So this was based on a book. I'm mean, gonna have to look it up and see if I can link it up because I have no memory what it was called. But it was something like the kids. It was like a kids' guide to money and finance or personal finance. And then there was a quiz attached to it. And sure enough, Sherry and I both were kind of like savers. And I think I was like entrepreneurial and saver, which totally makes sense, like cheap, but like want to start my own company. It's like, hey, that describes me to a T. And then she was like saver plus conservative almost like there was some additional thing because she she grew up also without you know a lot of money. I mean even more so than than me. And so it really did kind of translate well. And I think
1: I think it's interesting to know those things about yourself, you know, just to to introspect a little bit in terms of your how your spending habits can compare to say someone else's spending habits. And then you can use that awareness in both your personal life and in your business life because I think that you know, that's also something that probably bled through into my previous startup, the kind of the way that I, you know, I don't want to be cheap. And so I have a tendency, I probably had more of a tendency to pay for things that I didn't want, I shouldn't have paid for because of that mentality. And just having awareness is like the first step to uh, combating it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I've always liked, you know, there's the Colby A, there's the Enneagram, there is StrengthsFinder, there is Myers-Briggs. And, you know, some like true research psychologists, Thumb their nose, you know, at some of these because they're they're pop. But I like them. I, I read them and sometimes I'm like, that really is exactly who I am. You've done a great job of describing me. And then it'll be like, here's your blind spots, you know, and here's how what you should do. And I I love knowing like I think, a lot of being a successful founder is knowing yourself, knowing your tendencies, and then fighting against them. Because some people, some people want to launch a product and they just want it to work, and they're never actually gonna like push forward and and pivot and make the hard decisions to get there.
2: Maybe we should have this Enneagram or one of these tests that you've been taking as the uh, tiny seed filter.
1: Put it part of the application process. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> please do a
2: personality test here.
1: I mean, I would love to know <laughs> what the. I feel like there would be. Maybe a difference between the folks that are accepted versus the ones that are, or maybe the folks who are good fits versus people who are not good fits. It'd be funny to see if there was like a distinct line between the enneagram or something like, like that. Personality.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think it depends. That's the thing is like you know, I was talking, I recorded a YouTube video for the Microcom channel the other day, and it was like things investors look for in founders and companies, and part of it. Is, of course, the founders, there's something about their personality, but I've invested in successful founders who are totally driven, like a Jordan Gall, who's just like hungry and will succeed at all costs, right? And not at all costs, but like he's just very driven to do it. And then there are folks who are super pretty chill, but they still get it done. And they're not in a big hurry and they're more patient, but they do. But the commonality are things that we've talked about before, which is like, but are they shipping things relatively quickly? Are they working on generally the right things? Are they making some mistakes? But most of what they do works, 60, 70% of what they try works versus like the opposite where it's like, there could be like the victim mentality of like, oh, all these outside things are making it so I can't succeed, Right.
1: It's interesting because I'm reading a survival book. It's for wilderness survival. So, people on shipwrecks and on top of mountains, and they have to. How su- bad
2: are things getting in Toronto? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you
1: know me. I do backpacking. This stuff is right up my interest. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like one of the things it talks about for survival in these situations is to, like, one of the most important things is they somehow have a good attitude. And it's impossible because there's like a case of people on a boat that are shipwrecked, and like, slowly people are dying on this boat until so there's like two people left. And have to deal with like this kind of trauma going on. And that's the only way if you keep your brain healthy and those kind of like super traumatic is to try to like take joy in little things and trying to like, you know, that's the only way you can like protect your brain from just like giving up. And it kind of applies for business as well. You know, you're going to go through some really tough points in business and to have that survival mentality of, you know, kind of rolling with the punches, noticing the good things, celebrating the little wins can lead to, um, you know, at least a better Better mental health as the company is growing. And so that better mental health also is gonna hopefully kind of go off track here, but hopefully lead to a, a stronger company. Yeah,
0: it's the idea of having a grip on reality, or not a gr- even a grip, but it's having a realistic view of what's happening. Have you heard of the Stockdale paradox? I think it was mentioned in good to great. No. James Stockdale, he's he was a former vice presidential candidate, but he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And he said you need to balance essentially you need to balance realism with optimism which is exactly what you've said, Tracy. And it's like, he said, we were POWs and people who were like, well, we're going to be out by Christmas. We're going to be out by Christmas. We're going to be out by Christmas. Not enough realism, too much optimism. And they would inevitably like, die like they he said he lost a bunch of people who thought they were going to be out in three months and then the people who said we're never going to get out they didn't have enough optimism a little too much realism right and he said you had to balance this thing of like well this is our present situation but let's figure out how to make it better and let's figure out how to live with this long term until until essentially you know we we get rescued or whatever we can break out of here
1: Yeah. Or like at least be able to look at your current situation and still have like the mental fortitude to find something amusing or find something, some sort of like piece of joy. You know, maybe you tripped on a weird rock and you found that funny and you start laughing a little bit. Your brain is like that kind of help protects your brain if you can try to find those little like moments in the hard parts rather than like going straight into despair. Yeah.
0: And as a founder, what is it? some realism and some optimism. And, that you know, the founders, and we're not just talking about tiny seed founders here, no founders in microcomp, founders, you know, just wherever that we met. The ones that are just a lot too optimistic and don't have that reality check are usually the ones that are working on the wrong things. And someone who is, I think, a little too realistic and is pessimistic about it, although some of those succeed, but they sure
2: don't enjoy it along the way. I think that's the difference too, right? I think the people who are too optimistic are more likely to succeed than the people who are too pessimistic. I feel like some founders, and I don't think this applies to, any tiny seed founders that come to mind is like, they would they'd starve to death on a beach around the bend from a, from a world-class resort. Cause they, It's too much, it's too risky to walk around and have a look, you know, I do think that's probably the case.
0: And on that cheery note, we.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's a good final it conclusion. Is. Very, you know.
0: Beach resort <laughs> is a picture in my head, not the person starving to death around the corner. So with that <laughs> amazing picture in mind, Tracy Osborne, you are Tracy Makes on Twitter. And you will be going through applications for Tiny Seed batches, the next batches.
1: My DMs are open. DMs on, you know, the Tiny Seed Funds Twitter account and as well as my personal account are open if you have any questions. You can also email us at hello at tinyseed.com if you have any questions. We love any and all questions from you know whether you think you're a good fit or you know have a question about the application process. Feel free to reach out. We'll, we'll get back to you.
0: And Anar, you are Anar Volset on Twitter.
2: Indeed I am. And most of the time it's me complaining about how bad the Giants are this year.
1: I know. Following following Anar is a a fun process. (laughs) It's an experience. Yeah, (laughs)
0: It's
1: an experience, (laughs) yeah.
0: And if you're listening and we're not connected on Twitter, I'm at Rob Walling. Thanks, you two, for joining me this week. Thank you.
1: Happy to be here. That
0: was fun. Thanks again so much for joining me this week. I hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll have another news roundup coming at you here in the next couple months. It's Rob Walling signing off from episode 617.